Hello and welcome back to the Moses and Methuselah podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis and in this series, Peter Silen and I draw on our many years of working in the financial markets to chew the fat about current topics of interest, whether it's stocks and shares, politics, diplomacy or even books and films into which we sometimes also wander. We hope that you'll find some value in our friendly but often very different perspectives, one continental, one UK-centric, on the big issues of the day. Well, here we are again, Peter. It's just over two weeks since we last spoke. And uh, while there hasn't been an awful lot of action in the financial markets since then, both bonds and equities really continue to be ranging sideways as far as I can interpret them at least. But it's not been without incident and without important things to discuss. Today, we'd like I'd like to talk to you about debt with a particular reference to the US and, and two aspects of that. Number one is the outlook for credit and the trend in credit conditions in the United States and what that might mean for the markets. And then perhaps the more dramatic headline grabbing issue of the negotiations over the US federal debt ceiling, where we may be heading for an impasse on that politically contentious issue. So let's kick off, though. Let me ask you about credit conditions and why they're important at this particular moment to keep an eye on. Nice to be back, Jonathan, because liquidity is always at the forefront of any concerns when things get rough. And these concerns were accelerated by the run on the well-known banks, American banks that nobody had, at least we Europeans, or at least me, had not really heard of. They were not on the radar screen until they started dropping like flies. And so you experienced this enormous run on the banks by depositors. And what they did with their money is, is to invest their money into the money market funds, therefore disappearing from the frontline view, if you like. That led or is leading to a number of chain reactions and the expression credit crunch or credit squeeze, squeeze I think is less dramatic than crunch, is obviously now more and more being cited as a cause for worry for the obvious reason that that produces the risk of recession. And this fear is very much visible in bond prices, which, as you say, are moving sideways. They're not going up, but they're not going down either. I have to admit that these credit conditions are one of the things that I spend a lot of time looking at, but I did do some reading around it. There are surveys and data that people seize on in the markets, but as always, there's some difficulty interpreting them. A little bit seems to depend on what your view of how the world is going to play out is already, and then you can grab the piece of the evidence that actually suits you to uh, support your argument. A day or so ago, there was a release of what's called the Senior Lending Officers Opinion Survey, which is basically, obviously, banks, how far they're willing to lend and what their outlook is. And some people took the outcome of the latest survey as saying that it will force the Fed to reduce interest rates sooner rather than later, because there'll be tightening by the banks that will therefore have an impact on the way that the economy performs. So if that is true, if it is a negative reading, then that, of course, is a reason why the economy may be slowing and therefore a reason why bond yields at least are not going up any further. I don't know whether your concerns are based on specific figures or just on the general common sense point of view that uh, if the banks are losing deposits, they're just not going to be able to have quite as much money to lend as, uh, as they would otherwise have. I'm very interested in that you referred a minute ago to confirmation bias, because I think we in the investment world 
needs to be careful not to fall prey to confirmation bias. Uh, and you could have accused me of being a victim of confirmation bias recently because of my views on where bond yields are heading. But actually, the fact that banks have tightened lending standards to firms as well as to households is um, according to the Federal Reserve. So they're the ones who said that. It's not the journalists or the media or the commentators. And the worry on the macro side is that the response by U.S. firms, and by the way, this is, I'm talking about U.S. firms, but it could happen and probably is happening elsewhere as well, that firms respond by lowering their capital expenditure, as well, of course, as reducing in hiring. Again, the result of all that is that you have to expect that bankruptcies go up, which in turn will result in the labor market weakening and growth weakening or even rolling over. So that's the link between a credit crunch, which is started by a run on the banks, and a recession, which more and more people say will happen later in the year. Depositors are expected to keep withdrawing their money from the banks. The other side of the coin, though, is that if you're a potential borrower, you're facing two problems, aren't you? Whatever happens to bond yields in the very short term, whatever you were paying before for your borrowing, it's going to be higher than it was uh, recently. So there's the cost of borrowing. And there's also, of course, the demand for it. The more worrying side of the figures, as I interpret them, is that the demand for credit is actually not rising either. That is certainly consistent with my view. I think that we are heading for a recession. Quite what happens to bond yields, though, if we are heading for a recession, is I think still worth mentioning or at least discussing briefly. The kind of assumption behind those who are bullish on bonds is that if there's a recession, then bond yields must fall further and we will therefore get back to a very uh, low level. And there'll be some capital gains we made from bonds in that process, certainly at the short end of the curve. But of course, meanwhile, inflation is still very sticky and we haven't seen it come down. So we could be facing a period where we actually have a mild recession, but inflation is still relatively high for a period at least. And that would be what people call stagflation. And that's not necessarily going to mean that bond yields are going to fall a long way. I agree. And I'm glad you use the word stagflation. You don't hear that very often. The stagnation part of stagflation is reflected in the longer bond yields. And the inflation part of stagflation is reflected in the shorter bond yields. Hence, for our listeners, an inverted yield curve. So if what you say is right, inflation is going to be stickier for longer. And if this causes weakening growth, which could even transform itself into a recession, then you will have the inverted yield curve situation going on for longer than it would otherwise prevail, which of course in turn is going to be not good for the banking business, especially for those banks that undertake borrowing short and lending long, which is not all of them, but a lot of them. And that in turn could exacerbate the problems and anxieties in the banking industry as a whole. And when you've told me your thoughts on that, I think we should touch upon the other worry, which is also gaining traction, which is the commercial real estate problems out there, not only in America, but also in other countries, in Europe, in Sweden. I think before we turn to the debt ceiling cliff, I think we should touch on the commercial real estate issues as well. 
Well, I don't have much to add to what you said before, except to say that what I think you'd expect to see if we are approaching an imminent recession, but inflation remains relatively elevated, at least not back down to the Fed's target, you would expect to see the yield curve kind of flattening a little bit. We have seen a very slight movement in that direction, I think, in the last few weeks. The gap between the very short term and the long term bonds is, is now a little bit narrower than it was at the peak of the inversion. But let's talk about commercial real estate. Everybody's very gloomy about commercial real estate, which never does well in an environment of rising bond yields. It's the combination, I guess, of rising bond yields and economic recession that is the worst news for commercial real estate. How bad a problem do you think it is? We've seen, obviously, prices correct quite a lot already in the UK and across parts of Europe. But uh, how bad do you think it is uh, overall? I can't really tell you how bad it is. But what I think I can tell you is that However bad it is, it's being exacerbated by a new attitude to work in general. In other words, compared with before the pandemic, there are more and more people who are ready, able and willing to work from home. And that's not at all just a US phenomenon. In the UK, it's just as much the case. And so you have these office spaces being half full or being empty and prices coming down The commercial real estate problems are part and parcel of a picture of economic deterioration. The problem is that once again, it's quite intangible, it's quite invisible, and it's difficult to put your finger on it. What I mean by that is that in America, there are something like 4,400 banks, which is, of course, much too much. It's hugely overbanked. But the vast majority of these banks are not quoted on any stock exchanges. And the vast majority of that vast majority are in the commercial real estate lending business. But the difference between Silicon Valley and one of these regional banks, the regional banks that we've never heard of at all and that are involved in commercial real estate business, is that what Silicon Valley Bank was doing was there for all to see. And in this age of social media, as we discussed last time, the chain reaction from short selling to buying the CDX insurance swaps to then the run on deposits and the share price descending by 90%, all that in a very quick time, it doesn't work like that in the vast majority of the regional banks, which on the one hand is good because we're not going to have another three Silicon Valley banks in the next three days. But on the other hand, is worrisome because you don't know what's going on. So you think it's kind of creeping up on us, the impact. I think a lot, obviously, does depend which country or region you're looking at. There is quite a good proxy of what's happened in the UK. You can measure the change in valuations by looking at the prices of the listed commercial property uh, trusts, a sector I follow quite closely. And we saw a 15% valuation decline in the last quarter of last year. So another 15% in a quarter, which is pretty dramatic. That was partly due to the specific issues we had in the UK about the trust government disaster, which forced uh, gilts up quite sharply. But that's since stabilised. And I've talked to a couple of commercial real estate property trust managers in the last few weeks, and they take the view, perhaps not surprisingly, that basically it's not as bad as people think, and they've now taken the hit and it's going to stabilise a little. That's just one perspective. I think it's such a huge market globally, commercial real estate, that we're bound to see some impact. I don't know how bad that's going to be and how persistent it will be, but I wouldn't be surprised at least to see it weaken further. Which would be normal if you think about it, whether it's a run on the bank, commercial real estate weakness, pulling in the horns with regard to capital expenditure, all that is part of the economic cycle. 
except that, and now I just want to touch on this very interesting insistence by most members of the media and also a lot of, if not most of, market practitioners who are now shouting from the rooftops that the markets are wrong. I read that every day. I read every day how the commentators say that they wish that the markets would finally wake up and start listening to the central banks, and that when they do listen to the central banks, they will suddenly realize that there's not a lot of flaw under their feet, and therefore markets are destined to go down as the economic statistics deteriorate as the months progress. You know, Jonathan, that I don't believe in that. I believe that the markets are there to look across the valley and that we are now getting into the valley, but the markets have already been in the valley, hence the much higher bond yields earlier on in the year and last year. And so now the the page is being turned. I'm not sure if you agree with me there, whether there is more bullishness or is there more bearishness in the atmosphere? What would you say, Jonathan? Well, I'd say two things. First of all, I do generally agree with you that the markets are quite good at determining what's going to happen. But I would just point out that back in 2021, the markets were not anticipating that inflation was going to get out of control and the interest rates were going to go as high as they did do. Far from it. For a long time, they were still, if you were, in the pocket of the Fed. They believed the Fed when it said that inflation would be transitory. However, the general principle does remain true. In terms of sentiment, I think there's still a bias towards the bearishness. No question about that. It's not just bearishness. We have seen big outflows from equity funds, for example, as investors have yanked their money out of the stock market for fear of what might be coming. And that's normally, as you often point out, that's often a good contrarian indicator. What we haven't seen, though, so far, I think, is what we would call capitulation, where everybody, not just the majority, but everybody was tearing their hair out and saying it's never going to get any better. We haven't reached that point yet. Maybe we won't. I hope we won't. But yeah, sentiment is negative. And as you say, the media do like the bad news headlines. That's what sells newspapers. So yes, sentiment is not good, but it's not as bad as it could be. Or was, for example, in um, 2009, when the bull market uh, after the global financial crisis really kicked off. So I'm still wary about uh, where we are. Because while people may be negative, they're not as gloomy as they could be if they thought about some of the things that might be about to happen. And one of those is the issue around the debt ceiling in America. If the Congress would fail to agree to raise the federal government's debt ceiling, that would create, certainly in the short term, some kind of market event. You would think, would you not? You certainly would. Although we must remind ourselves what the most likely scenario is based on previous crises of this nature which is that they reach an agreement at the 11th hour. And if you saw the way the US dollar bounced in the last 24 hours, this may be wrong, but in my opinion, it's because President Biden and the Speaker are actually finally starting to communicate with each other. So the market might be thinking that this is the first step towards an 11th hour agreement. But even if it isn't, it's quite interesting to have a closer look at what happens if there is no agreement. And if there is uh, at the last minute, and if the only outcome would be a default, because there are actually a couple of other things that the Treasury in in America could do to prevent that, to prevent also the disruption, not only of the global financial system, but more importantly to the Americans, the standing of the US dollar. So there are certain things that the Treasury could do to pull back control or to take control of 
monetary policy, which sounds, of course, a bit strange, but they would essentially be removing that task from the hands of the Fed. That's why you read all sorts of things like the one trillion US dollar coin, which you need to stop and think about it a little bit. What does it actually mean? But it would mean that the Fed for the time being would be disenfranchised and that independence would be undermined. Another thing that the Treasury could do is issue new bonds with an enormous coupon premium compared to the current one. All this without creating new money. But it's likely to be an academic discussion rather than a real one, because even though these solutions are better than default, I don't think anybody, neither the Democrats nor the Republicans nor anyone else, would really like there to be a default because it doesn't help anyone. It harms everyone. And so I'm relatively relaxed, rightly or wrongly, about this, because you do remember that we're not here for the first time. Indeed, we're not. And the last time it actually went right to the wire was in 2011. And that uh, was resolved eventually. Uh, as you're right, eventually it will be resolved one way or another. But can you imagine the psychological impact and uh, perhaps more importantly, the enduring impact of issuing a bond with a 34% coupon? That would be a fairly uh, dramatic event. If you look at the price of credit default swaps, which are an indication of the likelihood of a default in as far as governments are concerned, the price of a credit default swap for the US has actually been systematically higher since 2011 than it was before. In other words, there was some damage. Okay, it's a very small percentage chance of a default, obviously, but some people want to take protection against that. But it has been higher since 2011 than now. So in other words, there is a sort of enduring longer term effect on the way that people regard the currency. And that comes at a time when we know that China and Russia and number of Middle East countries are trying to reduce their dependence on the dollar. So it's not the kind of thing you want to be doing. If you were running an orderly country, you wouldn't want to even run the risk of going right to the wire on this. I don't think you can say it's entirely without damage over the medium to longer term, even though, as you say, I would say it's very high probability that they will sort it out just before they get to the end of the process. Now, I see that Donald Trump's been making noises which are not helpful either on this particular matter. Donald Trump has been making noises recently on various matters, as you've seen, and I don't think that they're particularly useful, except, of course, he could be undermining his own chances of going back into the White House. I'm not necessarily sure he really understands these issues to the full extent required. Um, <laughs> well, that's but, true of many things, of course, yeah. Yes, but if it goes into a default situation, then... President Biden's chances of winning the next election must be reduced heavily because there would have been a number of serious crises in the last few years, which have been on his watch, compounded by the fact that then he allowed his country to default. I'm sure that next year, as we approach the US presidential election, you and I will be talking more about it. But I want to say one thing before handing back to you. You mentioned the you didn't use the word de-dollarization, but that's what you were talking about, how there are big efforts underway from China with the help of allies of China and obviously with Russia's help of reducing the importance of the US dollar in commercial transactions and in world trade. But of course, there's a lot of hype around that. It's not an easy thing to do. You need to have a freely convertible currency which the renminbi is not. You need this to be backed up by an enormous 
sovereign bond market, which the Chinese do not have. It's nothing like big enough, deep enough and liquid enough to support the renminbi taking the place of the US dollar. So my bet is still that the debt ceiling crisis will be resolved. In five years, the US dollar will still be the world number one currency. And you will still have the world's best companies in the US of A. And life just goes on. That's my view. Well, I'm sure you're right. I don't think this is an issue for the next five years. Uh, but there is an issue coming in at some point. But it's not for probably quite a long time yet. So perhaps we should spend less time even talking about it. Markets can be quite frenetic and they can seize on issues for moments that don't seem to have as much for this as they should. But that's the world we live in. In the meantime, Peter, you're feeling quite positive about all this, are you? Then do you think we might actually get a bounce if the debt ceiling is resolved? Do you think that'll be more good news to support your kind of generally fairly optimistic outlook for um, the equity market? It's one worry less. And I think that then the dollar can resume its gentle decline once that problem is. It's a bit ironic. You've got a risk of default in the USA, and yet the dollar goes up. Well, it went up because the president and the speaker potentially might come to a solution at the 11th hour. But you know, Jonathan, I'm always generally positive. I think that you cannot be an investor in shares and not be generally positive. Uh, especially in shares of companies where the earnings steadily grow and where you know that the share price is driven by the earnings. If you've got a portfolio of outstanding companies, there's no real logic in being pessimistic about the next six or 12 months. And so you just have to go through these periods like last year. But on a very long term basis, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, I still think that that's the best combination of risk and return. So, yes, I remain positive, Jonathan. Well, that's very good to hear. So we will uh, resume in a couple of weeks' time. And by then, we should have a pretty good idea whether the debt ceiling standoff is still going on or has been resolved. Let's look forward to that. I look forward to that, Jonathan. Thank you very much. You have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah podcast, hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silen. These podcasts are independently edited and produced. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels or by signing up on the Moneymakers or Eminem podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice.